Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Israelis went to the polls this week, the result of which was a substantial victory for Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing Likud party. This election was exceedingly consequential for the Arab-Israeli peace process and for the prospects of a negotiated agreement on a two-state solution. Israeli parliamentary politics are notoriously complex, so I reached out to someone who is both an astute observer of the Knesset and someone who works day in and day out to achieve peace between Palestinians and Israelis. Joel Brunold is the U.S. Director of the Alliance for Middle East Peace. In this episode, he breaks down the election results and dives deep into what Netanyahu's victory means for the prospects of a two-state solution, which, not to give anything away, became much dimmer. Joel discusses how drawing on a lesson from Northern Ireland, even in the midst of this apparent setback, ordinary people can lay the foundation for an enduring peace. This is a great episode if you have 15 to 20 minutes and want to understand A, the Israeli elections, B, what it means for international peace. Have a listen. So here he is, Joel Brunold of the Alliance for Middle East Peace. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I think that if there is a story of this election, um, it's fundamentally that the large uh, bloc parties, so the Likud, which is sort of the traditional right-wing party in Israel, and Zionist Union, which is the Labour Party stroke this time, with a unity with Sibi Libni, um, regain strength within their own sort of left and right blocs. Um, but fundamentally, uh, there were no real changes between the right and the left in this election, which might surprise a lot of your listeners uh, when we break down the results. I think that there was a lot of attention because there was a belief that after three terms in office, this might be the election that Benjamin Netanyahu would have lost. And uh, he confounded all of his critics. He proved the polling wrong in, in the last week of the election. Um, managed to basically dominate the right-wing bloc and bring back into the Likud a lot of the satellite parties that had left it, so, you know, a lot of their votes. And in doing so, uh, opened up a six-seat lead over his closest rival, the Zionist Union, which was Yitzhak Herzog. Um, so I think that's why there was a lot of attention. In addition, I think given uh, how uh, Isaac Herzog, who is Benjamin Netanyahu's main rival for the prime ministership, there was a real... Uh, perception that there was a real alternative to Benjamin Netanyahu as the Prime Minister. And, you know, for the first time, one would argue, at least since the last election and probably the election before that, there was a real alternative to Netanyahu's-led government. Um, And uh, that they they didn't manage, the left didn't manage to capture really any new votes. They only grew their own block by one. Uh, And so we're left with a reality of a of a Netanyahu, you know, the odds on that Netanyahu will lead the next coalition government of Israel 
um, and from a much stronger position than he had in the previous coalition government. And is it fair to say that Netanyahu's new coalition, as it forms, will be, I guess, more coherently right-wing than the previous one? Very much so. So, you know, I, I think it, it's it's useful to sort of break down what happened to understand that. So, yes, the if, if what we assume happens, happens. Netanyahu will sit on top of a coalition of 67, and in the Israeli Knesset, there's 120 seats. You need to have 60 plus one. So 67 is a solid solid Knesset majority, which will be incredibly cohesive. Um, this is a what is termed a narrow right coalition. You know, this is a coalition of all the parties on the right, so that's the could. Habayat Yehudi, which is Natalie Bennett's party, who is traditionally seen as representing the religious Zionists and the settlers. Um, Yisrael Beitenu, which was Avigdor Lieberman's party, who has uh, been the foreign minister up till now, and though believes in a two-state solution, believes in uh, the voluntary transfer of Israel's Arab citizens uh, to a Palestinian state, um, and the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, so the Shas and, U- and United Torah Judaism party, which are the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel. Um, alongside those groups, the group that Netanyahu needs to bring in uh, is a man called Moshe Kachlon, uh, who was until the previous Knesset the communications minister for the Likud, uh, who then left the Likud uh, and ran under his own banner for social justice and welfare. Uh, but it is widely assumed that he will be joining the Likud uh, and creating 67 block, a 67-seat block. Um, what this means is you're going to have a block that fundamentally does not believe in a two-state solution. Uh, I think that Kachlon's party, because it has Michael Oren, the former U.S., uh, the former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., probably does believe in a two-state solution. But in order to have achieved the victory he did, Netanyahu moved the Likud to the right. So in the week before the election, when all the polling stopped, you heard uh, what was termed the Gewalt campaign. And Gewalt is sort of woe is to me in, in Hebrew and Yiddish. Um, Netanyahu, you know, went out to his base and to the base of all of the right in Israel and said, if you don't vote for the Likud, there will not be a right-wing-led government. And his message worked. Um, in the course of making that pitch, he officially abandoned the two-state solution. And on election day itself, he, uh, he made what can only be termed as incredibly uh, incite, uh, insightful, as in racially inciting, inciting statements against uh, the Arab community, claiming that the left and foreign NGOs were bussing Arabs to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, As if, like, getting Israeli citizens to vote was, was something of, of a bad thing. Was something that was negative. Yeah, you know, so... The equivalent of the Southern strategy that, you know, the U.S. saw in the 60s, mm-hmm. sort of wolf-whistling at a minority, that depressing voter turnout in a racial minority is something that should be saluted. So here's my question. So... <laughs> In, in the, um, you know, lead up the week before the election, Netanyahu, you know, formally disavowed the two-state solution. I mean, but whereas, you know, in the previous years in power, he, you know, at least rhetorically professed to support the two-state solution while simultaneously undertaking actions that were inimical to Palestinian statehood. Um, but at least that rhetorical support gave him some cover internationally. I mean, now that he's disavowed the two-state solution, I mean, what does that mean for Israel's, you know, relations with Europe, relations with the United States? 
you know, it, it's really difficult. I'm assuming you're going to see Netanyahu, and if Kachlon joins the government, my assumption being that Michael Oren will play some role within the foreign ministry, you're going to see Netanyahu try, I would assume, to walk back some of the statements. But I, I don't really see how he does. The reason that Netanyahu got such a big vote on the night was not that more centrist Israelis voted for him. What he did was he took the votes from the parties which were traditionally seen to the right of him, and he just added them to the Likud. And he did that through his abandonment of the two-state solution. He did that through the wolf whistling against the Arab citizens of Israel. And, you know, he did that by demonstrating that the Likud is the home of where the Israeli right is up to. And they have a bigger uh, natural constituency currently than the Israeli left. Uh, and looking at uh, on what that did, uh, you know, I, I don't really know what Netanyahu's future is. Is it, um, you know, the future for Israel? Is it Natalie Bennett's vision of annexation of Area C? Um, is it Avigdor Lieberman's vision of uh, a transfer of populations and not of, and not of land? Um, you know, I think everyone can agree that the status quo is fracturing, as the PLO, you know, mold collapsing the PA, the, you know, and we're, we're into this part where there's an incredible vacuum, and Netanyahu won the election by promising, you know, an uncertain future, but a future where, you know, he can gather the votes of those who do not believe in the national statehood rights of Palestinians, and also have questionable you know, values when it comes to the democratic nature of the state of Israel in terms of how they feel, um, you know, equality versus Israel's Jewish character should be seen. And I think that what we're going to see is a big fight within the Likud. As, um, in the last Knesset, the Likud lost um, some of the key, uh, quote-unquote, Democrats within the Likud. You know, Reuven Rivlin became the president of Israel, and, you know, he's a Likudnik, but he's very solid on... Uh, Israel, uh, Jewish Arab rights. He's, he finds that that's sort of been the key point of his presidency. And Netanyahu, in this election, to try and demonstrate that the Likud wasn't going completely right, added Benny Begin back into the mix, uh, who is also a believer in sort of, you know, rights and the value of the Supreme Court. Mm. The rest of his coalition doesn't believe in that same way. And um, so I, I think that there's going to be a really big challenge. So I guess... What does this mean, I mean, internationally? So it's like hard for me to uh, understand how, you know, the United States, for example, I mean, I know we have our own like, you know, domestic political issues that that um, undergird a very strong support for Israel. But, you know, diplomatically, how does the Obama administration continue to defend Israel when its leader is, you know, has has shut the door on the two-state solution, the only kind of viable path to Palestinian statehood. Again, there was this, like, patina of legitimacy to the U.S. defense of Israel in, like, the Netanyahu, previous Netanyahu era, because at least he rhetorically supported the two-state solution. Now that's out the window. So how does this change, you know, Israel's foreign relations? And I, I would imagine Europe is, is even bigger of a deal. You know, Europe is a much bigger trading partner with Israel. Um, so how do those, you know, yeah, how do those leaders like react to, to you know, Netanyahu's abrogation of, of basic, you know, rights for Palestinians? You know, it's interesting because the EU came out with a statement today that said that it's looking forward to working with the Israeli government on mutually beneficial relationships as well as the relaunch of the peace process. You know, it goes through it all, but the, 
the term two-state solution doesn't appear in their statement. And I think that what the, the Israeli government will try and do is try and focus the eyes of the international community on ISIS and on Iran. And, you know, more of the same, try and ignore the Palestinian issue. And the Palestinians will fight to try and get their moment uh, heard and, and, you know, and, and literally their day in court when it comes to the ICC. Um, and the aim of the Israeli right will be to say, you know, you can punish us and you can attack us for what we're doing to the Palestinians, but you need us when it comes to the conflict with ISIS and with the conflict with Iran, and we'll try and build soft regional partnerships with sort of Egypt, with Saudi, sort of more of the same that you had before the election. I think that the Obama administration is going to find this very hard. You know, I don't know how they can justify a continued veto at the Security Council around settlements uh, if there's no no hope or no sort of realism around a two-state solution. Um, And I think that the impetus is on Netanyahu, um, to put forward what his vision is. You know, I, I, he for so long, you know, he, the, when he walked back the Bar Ilan speech, which was his declaration of support for the two-state solution, it's on him as now one of Israel's longest-serving prime ministers in history to say, well, what's his future for what Israel's borders look like? You, you can't just ignore that. And depending on what he says is his vision, then maintains what the international community's response should be. But, but the international community should demand of Benjamin Netanyahu and, and demand it very harshly that he comes out with what his vision for this is now that he's claiming that he's disavowed the two-state solution. And they need to judge that on its merits. But given that the two-state solution was basically the bare minimum of what the Palestinians were demanding and around the maximum of what the majority of Israelis are willing to give, I don't really see what happens next in terms of, you know, what his vision could be. Um, I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting to to watch and to see. Um, you know, lots of people have lost lots of money betting on what happens between Israelis and Palestinians, but uh, any move to annex, any move to sort of uh, move to a post two state framework will 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 come with a call for equal rights within the state of Israel for for not just currently Israel's 20% minority, but also those of which Israel currently occupies by a military occupation. And we know it's a military occupation, not just because the international community says so, not just because international law uh, seems to be in consensus, but because Israel has two sets of laws. It has a military, you know, the West Bank is under, you know, the military court system and Israel on the other side of the green line is not. So if we move to annexation, the entire legal framework changes as well. So we're in really uncharted territories until Netanyahu says what his vision is. Uh, so what next for then uh, Abbas? Like, how do you think he will respond to this election and, and the Palestinian Authority more generally? Like, what, what do you think their course of action is? I mean, are they going to wait for Netanyahu to lay out his vision before they plot their you know strategy to you know realize statehood well already today you've you've heard Saeb Erekat and I, I didn't see if it was Abbas himself but Erekat saying you know the result of the election was clearly that we need to continue moving towards the ICC uh, and you know the Abbas's strategy has been you know um, let's go towards the ICC and internationalize the conflict in the legal courtroom you know, the ICC will not deliver a Palestinian state. 
it won't. You know, the Palestinians are far more equal and probably have some advantages by moving it to the ICC versus the Israelis. Um, So it's a a field of, of, Mm -hmm. it's a new field of the conflict that they can do better in, but it it ultimately won't deliver the ultimate Mm -hmm. aspirations, be that political rights in Israel or or a two-state outcome. I think if I remember, Abbas will probably say, let's see what this current coalition comes out with as their future, and will also demand that Netanyahu puts down what his vision is for the Palestinian people. And I think that that's going to, you know, I think a lot of people are going to wait for that. But the Palestinian, the PLO isn't going to wait for Netanyahu to decide what he he feels like at any given time. Um, Outside of the long-term vision, the short-term emergency, of course, is the tax revenues that Netanyahu's government has been holding up as punishment for the Palestinians going to the ICC. Now that Netanyahu is a very stable right-wing coalition, the argument could go, well, he probably has the authority to release the tax revenues to prevent the PA from collapsing. The question is, you know, what what does he do? Um, and, you know, the next few weeks are going to be quite instructive to that. Uh, on the congressional side, of course, the Palestinian move to the ICC triggers many different legislative triggers mm-hmm. and could lead to a complete reduction or restriction on aid to the Palestinians, both the, to the PA. And I think that uh, there's going to be an interesting conversation going on in Congress. Uh, can one punish the PA for going to the ICC if uh, Netanyahu is officially abandoning the two-state solution? And I don't think we know how that's going mm-hmm. how that's going to wind up either. For the record, I actually don't think the ICC prosecutor is going to take up this case, even if, uh, you know, uh, Palestine's what's called self-refers to the ICC. But that's a the subject yeah. of another another podcast interview. I wanted to ask maybe... I, I, um, I, I am sending, yeah. I'm sending to agree to, with you. I, don't yeah. know, I, I think that there might be a better chance on, on settlements rather than what happened in Gaza, but it's an open conversation. I know mm-hmm. that people are pretty skeptical given the mass human rights abuses people are seeing around the world. So I wanted to ask maybe something like uh, maybe a little more personal. I mean, you're working in civil society to try to advance the two-state solution um, as the U.S. director for the Alliance for Middle East Peace. Like, what's next for you? I mean, how do you, like, deal with, like, a, a setback like this and, and like, trug on? Well, just to be clear, the work of all of the alliance isn't fundamentally just about the two-state solution. Uh, the alliance is a network of 87 different uh peace and reconciliation groups. Some of them are fully on board with the two-state solution. Others are apolitical. They all sign up to sort of six virtues uh, of, you know, uh, peace, um, justice, security, rights, um, freedom, and coexistence. And those six sort of, you know, justify a lot of the programmings that they do and they work around. You know, I I think that uh, different groups are taking different approaches, but as a sector, Let's see, you know, how did Netanyahu win this election? He won this election by appearing to, appealing to the Israelis' base fears of, of Arabs voting uh, and of, you know, compromise. And it just reveals the depth of the challenge that those of us who believe in a shared society and coexistence of, you know, equality deal with. Uh, and we need, to, we need to solidify and institutionalize our foundations. I think one of the interesting points, Mark, is that there is a myth uh, that the people-to-people movement has been over-resourced. If anything, we've seen the resources going into this field completely diminished and the amount of money going in reduced to a remarkable level. 
groups that have successful programming, like the hand-in-hand school systems that sort of uh, educate uh, Jews and Arabs together, you know, have managed to grow to five schools, but there's no money for them to expand to 15 schools. Uh, Echo Peace that do sort of water projects between Israelis, Palestinians, and Jordanians are stuck at around 25 water communities and can't scale because there isn't the resources for them to scale. And so I think that the work that our community needs to do at the moment is try and convince the international community that now's the time to invest at the grassroots level about building a rehumanization and a normalization between uh, Jews and Arabs. And, you know, what we're doing at the moment is, you know, the Alliance has some legislation that actually should be introduced into Congress today that would create something called the International Fund for Israeli-Palestinian Peace. And this is modeled off the International Fund for Ireland that between 1986 and 2010 distributed $1.5 billion to the hands of Catholics and Protestants. You know, in the Northern Irish conflict, there were periods of extreme darkness, but these funds actually helped build the fundamental trust between Catholics and Protestants that formed the basis of the Good Friday Agreement. And we need a similar sort of effort when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian peace. At the moment, there's roughly $45 million being spent on 12 million people. That's around $3.75 a head. In Northern Ireland, there was $33 head... uh, there are $33 being spent per head per year. So what the International Fund would do would create a $200 million fund, of which 50 would come from Congress, 50 comes from the EU, 50 comes from the Arab, the Arab states, and 50 from the private sector, to create a $200 million fund that would scale programs that have demonstrated that they can work. And in doing so, we can start solidifying and institutionalizing the support for these you know, shared institutions and uh, programs and uh, ability of groups that are not just nice, Mark, but they're necessary. And these groups don't just do cute programming. If we saw anything in this election, the need to say that Arabs and Jews can sit in the same government or that Arab citizens are just as equal as Jewish citizens or that Palestinians have rights uh, or that Israelis and Palestinians have actually a lot in common, these are the programs that portray these messages to both communities in ways that they can understand. And yet... This this election should be a wake-up call about the need to, to solidify the support for them. And in doing so, hopefully change the firmament within Israel so that Israel can approach its own future, not out of fear, but out of hope. Joel, thank you so much for your time, for your analysis, and for uh, this new project, which I will absolutely get behind. Thank you. No worries. I really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, thanks for the opportunity, Mark. And, um you know, let's let's watch and see, but the response to an election result that returns the right to power is not an abandonment of of coexistence values. And if there's one message that your listeners take, the work that the People to People movement does now more than ever is not just nice, it's necessary. And if we ever want to see uh, sort of a constituency of hope, we need to sort of institutionalize their support. Right, well, thank you to Joel. Thank you all for listening. There's a glimmer of hope in this after all. We just have to look beyond official politics and get back to the people-to-people movements that provide the foundations upon which peace can be achieved. If you're not already a subscriber, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes. We have an app for free you can download for your iPhone or Android. And this is a good example of the kind of content we post each week 
on Thursday or Wednesday in this case, which is a shorter conversation about something topical. Every Monday, I post longer conversations with foreign policy thought leaders or luminaries about their lives and careers. That's evergreen content. Go back and check out our robust archive at globaldispatchespodcast.com. And every episode is posted to UN Dispatch. Thanks. Bye.